Hello, AJT readers. This is Josh Levitsky. I'm here with Roz Manon from Nebraska. And welcome to the February, February edition of AJT Highlights. Um, this is a uh, much shorter one than usual, mainly because a number of the papers that are in the, the edition were already viewed on a previous COVID uh, podcast. And so I encourage you to take a uh, listen to that. Um, so we only have three papers today to go over. I'm just going to go over the uh, table of contents. So I'm going to start off with the impact of acuity circle model for liver allocation on multivisceral transplant candidates by Ivanix uh, group. And then Roz will do uh, procurement characteristics of high and low performing OPOs as seen in OPTN SRTR data by Lynch Lynch's group. And um, then we'll have a guest coming on, Dr. Satish Nadig, who is our uh, trans new transplant chief here at Northwestern. And this is his group's paper when he was at uh, MUSC, and it's entitled Modulating Donor Mitochondrial Fusion Fission Delivers Immunoprotective Effects in Cardiac Transplantation by Tran et al. and, and Dr. Nadig's, um, the senior author. So we'll have him join us at the end. So without further ado, um, let's get started. So I'm going to review the first paper here, a very interesting paper. Um, from led mainly by the um, Henry Ford group, Dr. Nagai, but with a, a multi-center, multi-author effort. This is this paper really is looking at the impact of the acuity circle model that was implemented in, right before the pandemic hit in February of 2020 for liver allocation and the impact of this on multivisceral transplantation. And I think it's you know it's important to look at. When there's an allocation change, is there any um, other populations that are uh, adversely affected by these changes? And while multivisceral transplant is, is small in number, um, it's a, I think it's important because the there could be some unintended consequences of of um, changing of the model change on populations like this. And so that's what this group looked at. And, and just to refresh everyone's memory, the allocation model changed in February of 2020 from a previous DSA donor service area based allocation model to um, acuity circles around a centers or um, around a donor and converting each center's median model of end stage liver disease MELD score at transplant to reflect transplants performed within a 20, 250 nautical mile radius. So um, these circles and there's already some preliminary data on some benefit this is already having in um, the liver allocation in terms of prioritizing sicker patients and also balancing out the geographic disparities. But this group looked at multivisceral transplantation, which is liver, intestine, and, and pancreas. And the reason this is important is that this group has typically been underserved by MELD. Usually their MELD scores aren't that high, but they have intestinal failure and they have cirrhosis of of their their liver because of um, intestinal failure and TPN and both adults and pediatrics. And so if uh, other allocation is changing to prioritize uh, liver alone, um, this may have a negative effect on these multivisceral uh, transplants. In addition, the other concern is that the donor pool for this population is much smaller, um, younger, non-obese, donors and 
and um, they need to have all grafts or all all the organs be in good shape. So they're very. It even becomes more difficult to get these organ transplants. And so the allocation model, the new allocation model, is important to look to see if there was worsening of an already difficult situation. So. Um, this is a, generally a, a, an analysis of SRTR using the STAR file, and they divided up multivisceral transplants into adult and pediatrics, and also pre-acuity circle from January 2018 to, to February 2020, and the year post-acuity circle, so just one year of data from February 2020 to March 2021. They looked at um, a number of covariates, uh, analyzed a wait list and also those who did get transplanted their post-transplant outcomes. So I should say that the numbers are are small. So there was a total of, if we look at adults first, there's a total of 127 adult uh, multivisceral transplant listings between the, uh, uh, that stretched the whole period. So 74 pre-acuity and 53 post-acuity and pediatrics kind of similar, 69 pre and 35 post. And so um, the first important thing is they looked at waitlist outcomes. So the cumulative incidence for adults of waitlist mortality increased in the post-acuity circle era, but not statistically significant. Probably has to do with something with the low numbers, but there definitely is a trend, as you can see on figure two, 2A. But the important thing is that the, there was a lower 90-day probability of receiving a transplant. And so they had a less likelihood of receiving a transplant at 90 days and a trend towards higher mortality, which of course goes along with um, the lower likelihood of getting transplanted. Pediatrics, interestingly, there was no difference in um, weightless mortality or 90-day chance of getting a transplant. Then they looked at post-transplant outcomes for the adult and pediatrics. And just to summarize, there was really no difference in the pre to post area in terms of post-transplant outcomes. So again, the, the summary here really is, um, this is a small cohort that uh, already has difficulty in getting organs. And it seems in the post-acuity circle era, at least in the first year, there was a, a diminishment in, their, in these patients' chance of getting a, a, a multivisceral transplant. Reasons for this, not entirely unclear, but suspected to be that um, as, as the, the acuity circles is stretching out further and it's prioritizing patients who are higher meld, there's an increased number of organs going to these higher meld patients. So when some of them might have gone to some of these, you know, these other populations, certainly the editorial was very kind of discussed the sort of the landscape of multivisceral transplantation. This was uh, written by um, Doug Farmer and Kareem Abu Al-Magd, who essentially just went over the story about the last two decades of multivisceral transplant, this issue of having lower access. I should note, these, a number of these patients get apply for exception points to raise their MELD score with points. In, in the study that was published by the, um, that I just mentioned, they only about 50 to 60% got exception points. So, what this really shows is that it's not really necessarily possible to change the allocation model for such a, such a small subset, but really there needs to be more, I think, attention paid to this in OPTN and the, the editorial stresses, um, maybe some corrective actions such as 
having a standalone OPTN intestine and multivisceral committee instead of grouping them into liver, and also maybe having some kind of uh, predictive model developed by SRTR for patients with liver and intestinal failure to, to put them more on the mortality risk, uh, have some type of model that's not meld, that kind of separates them out as a, as a kind of a different risk profile. Because uh, they're definitely being under underserved, I think, by the, the current model. Um, I think this is sort of a call to action in a way, and I, I think it's important to really kind of consider these this patient population separately. So, a very helpful paper, um, and uh, I think more is going to come out on on some of these populations that may be affected by the these major allocation changes. Well, in spite of the um, you know the, the the not statistically significant trend towards higher mortality, the impact in the hazard ratio was substantial, and um, you know I get that this is a small number of patients, but they're handled at, at several specialized centers that you know know how to handle them and have their best interests. And unfortunately, I think you know, a lot of those centers are affected by, by, you know, it's not like they're in areas where they were, they were going to benefit by these nautical mile improvements per se. And so I do think it is sort of a call to action. And, you know, I'm not in charge of the OPTN for sure, but certainly having, you know, specialists involved that could focus on the policy and then engage with the liver. I mean, all everybody is worried about is, you know, I don't want you to take my organs from me. And it's clearly, this is a small population that's clearly being negatively affected. Why do you think the kids less so? I don't know. Maybe the, you know, they're more resilient, probably pediatric, uh, uh, you know, patients on the wait list. And then, then older adults have more comorbidities. Um, I don't know about the, the, the difference in the, um, the, the, uh, the chance of getting a transplant. I, I don't know why that would be the case. You know, maybe there is special attention paid to getting these organs for, for kids. You know, so that, maybe especially yeah. in terms of size distribution, yeah. I guess, or I don't know enough about intestinal failure, adult versus kids. If there were biological mechanisms different between yeah. the adult and the kid, that might be leading to. Some yeah, I don't know. I don't know either. That's a that's a good question. Nevertheless, let's move on to uh, sure, your paper. Sure. So uh, I'm doing another. Uh, we're doing uh, focusing on another paper of the impact on OPOs, organ procurement organizations, by Raymond Lynch and colleagues. This group had a re- a recent podcast highlights back in July for the July podcast. So um, this is looking at procurement characteristics of high and low performing OPOs as seen in OPTN SRTR data. So just as some background to remind the listeners that on March 30th of 2021, CMS, the Senators for Medicare and Medicaid, adopted a new final rule on OPO performance. This was a long time coming and a lot of debate, but the 57 OPOs in the U.S., which are not-for-profit entities, which don't really have specific guidelines for operation and operation independent, have this new metric in place. And it's that the the number of donors recovered and the transplants performed within the donor service area is measured relative to what's called the calc death, the the cause, age, and location consistent death. And calc deaths are, are deaths among anyone under the age of 75 
from donation consistent causes. And this replaces the prior eligible death assessment, which many groups complained was not accurate, that there are definitely individuals that are not eligible for donation that are included, and this would be more specific in terms of understanding how the OPO was performing. And so, and understanding how this might actually be implemented has already been uh, evaluated by Lynch and colleagues in, in Brianna Doby's paper that we highlight on the podcast which is in the August issue of HAT 2021. And they showed in sort of a demo project that the use of this CALC measurement was actually beneficial in terms of uh, estimating performance. And again, as part of um, how OPOs are rated now, you know, there's a median value that's going to be obtained. And then those that are the top performing are in the top tier or in the top 25%, the median tier, which is about 50%, and then there's a bottom tier of 25%. And it's obvious that when you're trying to implement change in OPOs that you need accurate and complete data. And so the last time there was really super cooperative data, I remember, was the was the Oregon Collaborative in like 2003 when Tommy Thompson was Secretary of Health and Human Services. And he really implemented strong changes in, in Oregon acquisition and authorization and had all these workshops where OPOs are really working with donor families and learning more best practices. And again, I'm not implying that OPOs just do their own thing. I think of, think of they have a, an association, a OPO, and, but they just can give you recommendations. It's just like AST and ASTF. They don't provide guidelines. They don't monitor programs. They, we, we all independently operate transplant centers and, 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 and we all are under CMS. And we all have these rubrics of metrics. So the goal of this paper was really to see, to compare what the new metrics would look like or the new calculations would look like relative to the current reporting or the past reporting of SRTR. And again, here, OPTN is the contractor, has UNOS as the contractor, and the data are supplied to SRTR, which is the statistical contractor. And so SRTR provides regular assessments of these OPO metrics. So they um, utilized, I guess, uh, the 20, 2013 to 2019 uh, available SRTR OPO specific reports or OSRs, um, and they hypothesized that that markers of OPO variability and performance were present in that data. They just weren't provided to the OPOs, and they didn't really make an impact because, as I'll show you, they just didn't report things the way they could. And again. I'm not a statistician, but I continue to learn that how you present the data and evaluate it is just as important as showing the data. And, 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 and this paper makes a strong argument about moving forward. They utilized and incorporated several other public databases, including the Homeland Infrastructure Foundation level data. So they understood hospital service area and size of hospitals, locations, ethnicity of those hospitals, and rurality. And again, the total CMS-defined donors per 100 calc deaths was calculated for each OPO, and then they grouped the OPOs themselves in quartiles, not tiers, don't confuse it with the tiers, but quartiles. So they had a top quartile, and then two medium, and then the lowest quartile, as opposed to the tiers, which is a different system in CMS. The CMS measures were then compared to the historical SRTR measures. The historical 
measures of performance for eligible donor deaths per per eligible death and standardized donation rate, and they're derived by the ratio of observed eligible deaths over eligible deaths divided by expected eligible donor deaths over eligible deaths. So sort of sounds like an O over E, which I think many of us are uh, familiar with. So I'll cut to the results. I think there's a lot of information here, but I think much of it is is saying the similar things, but showing more differentiation. And, and overall, the newer calculations show more variability in organ procurement organization performance over time. And I think this is summarized by figure one, panel A, where they look at donors per 100 calc deaths and show that the higher, and this is how they sort of set up the tiers. Whereas if you look at the CMS metrics, all four tiers of performance or, or donation acquisition look very much similar. There's very little difference performance and there's very little difference over time. And that's really part of their argument. In figure two, they look at OPO performance based on hospitals by size as measured by both donors per hospital and donors per inpatient bed. So you may have a hospital of uh, a modest size hospital of 200 and you're dealing with a behemoth and a medical center in, in a big city of a thousand. And so the number of donor deaths in the hospital may vary based on your occupancy and based on the tertiary care level of nature. And they show um, again, that the rate of recovery is typically higher in larger hospitals, and there's a difference in the rate of recovery of both eligible and so-called non-eligible donors. And again, if you look at these top-performing two quartiles, those seem to always do better than the lower two quartiles using uh, this as an evaluation measure. I'm going to skip a couple of figures because I'm not sure they're really helpful. I think an interesting figure is figure four, where they looked at donor recovery over the racial and economic makeup of those particular hospitals. And interestingly, in hospitals that had higher proportion of black uh, patients, those OPOs that seemed to be performing at a higher level had more donors, whereas the lower performing OPOs had fewer of those donors. And likewise, even in the presence of rurality, where the rate of donation or the numbers of donors is lower, the higher performing OPOs did better, again, almost more consistently. And they did sort of do it a geographic assessment. They used the older metrics of, of two geographically aligned OPOs that remained anonymous, showing you that when you use just the standardized donation rates from SRTR, and this is figure 5C, both OPOs look the same, and they look the same over time. But if you actually look at the OPOs and whether they got uh, an eligible death or non-eligible death out of each hospital, the better performing OPO, in this case it was A, uh, did better. Not only did they, they, they actually showed improvement over time, which was never um, identified by the current metric. And indeed, their, their performance metric, if you went back retrospectively, both OPOs sort of look the same, but over time, A improved. And they, in fact, even do sort of a heat map of this in figure six, where they sort of look and use the current the calc metric at 2013 to 2019 and really show you that, by and large, the better performing, the best performing OPOs sort of continue to always be good. They've instituted best practices. They're effective. They've got great connections with their donor hospitals. Then there's a bulk of, of activity in the middle. And then the bottom quartile has a few people that have gone up, 
but not that many. So why does this matter? I mean, in, in terms of the acquisition of organs, when you have a, an ethnically diverse donor population, they estimated that if performance of the low OPOs in these hospitals was better, at least just coming to the mean, they estimated that there would have been 2,500 or so more eligible deaths that they could have potentially had eligible donors. And likewise, they kind of do a similar calculation in the end that if all tier three hospitals move to what's the median, they would have had probably 5,000 additional donors. And you can calculate the number of recovered organs if it's four and a half or whatever, but they actually showed it in terms of delisted or donor death or waitlist death. So the biggest impact here would have been lung where they calculated over that period about 76% of individuals died on the waiting list, the smallest number being kidney, which is about 10%. So the group here recommends, you know, accurate and standardized reporting and the ability now to do quality initiatives or QI initiatives. That race difference in recovery is a problem in these low-performing OPOs and should maybe be considered, you know, another action item. The editor by Amit Mather from the Mayo really kind of highlights these findings and feels that the SDRR, the standardized donation rate ratio, really does is not informative. So we just need to stop thinking about it, how these reports are going to be rolling out over the next few months. I even though I'm on the SRTR uh, review committee, I, I don't know, but it'll be interesting. He mentioned, you know, that there are some interesting aspects of uh, Hearst's contract with the OPTN, and one is called Task 5. Task 5 is identifying metrics to assess the transplant performance nationally and support informed decision-making, um, making, you know, through to the critical audiences, which includes, by the way, patients. So looking at those metrics from that perspective, from a policy perspective, he also pointed out that, you know, there are these high and low performing OPOs and it's, he called it really a phenotype because if you look at the data from the hospital size or the uh, the kind of hospital ge geography that it's serving, an underserved population or a rural population, that the highs stay high and the lows stay low. And so even when you account for these differences, there's a phenotype. And, you know, isn't it time for the there be a warning system for these low performers to say, we got high performers, here's an opportunity to learn. So Again, interesting paper, you know, a controversial area like last year was, you know, changing OPO metrics. It's now gone through. And and so some supportive data to indicate that that these metrics should be informative rather than being punitive, but the notion of being informative so that, you know, the low performing OPOs can move forward. And it's not about punishment. It's about optimizing the, the donor pool. Yeah, well, it's, it's, I, I think this is a important study it kind of um, sets the stage where we can see where things are going to be going forward more scrutiny on opos i think in a good way though i mean the one thing i i thought you might have some insight on is whether you know is there what kind of efforts are being done currently for those low performing opos to you know improve them do they is there maybe it's through AO, aopo that there's that there's some kind of um you know what what we do well, you know, kind of help the higher performing ones, help the lower performing ones, or some kind of more group effort to you know quality improvement that can that can help these rather than just saying you need to do better. Maybe they can learn from the the higher performing ones. I, I just wonder if you know of any 
Well, certainly, you know, there are, you know, regulatory penalties that will be levied against individuals that are performing poorly. And in fact, they may be, as you know, shut down, which and then there'll be a competitive, supposedly a competitive application process for other OPOs to take over. So I from a from a government perspective, I'm not sure that there's any effort made by you know, CMS to step in and say, hey, we're going to rehab you. It's in your best interest. It's sort of like when I read the rule, it's sort of like you either do it. And if you don't, you're out. And it's like survival of the fittest. From an AOPA perspective, I don't know. Um, uh, I'm not involved in OPO uh, politics of late, and I'm not on the board of OPO lately. I was uh, during the collaborative, I was, and I found it quite interesting in terms of you know, the government really stepped in and made an effort and there was money provided to create this collaborative. I mean, it was really pretty incredible that, you know, all around the country, there were teams and we were learning together and having these uh, activities. And it, it was multidisciplinary. So not only did it include medical professionals, but it included the surgical teams, the admin teams, the donor, you know, the donor coordinators. Again, there has been a breakout of some of the OPOs to an independent sort of operational group. And, you know, is that going to be sort of the way that things are going to sort of break down? It, it really is sort of, I, I mean, the reason I bring it up is, you know, I, I would say, why is it AOPO doing more? But when you think about it, they're a professional organization. It would be like AST coming in and saying, hey, you know, your doctors are underperforming mm-hmm. or ASTS stepping in and saying, hey, you didn't do enough transplants, center X. We're going to tell you how to do it. And I don't think from a peer perspective, we would feel good. But I do know that our societies do provide the opportunity to learn and to have best practices. And maybe yeah. that's really where the AOPO can come in. Okay, we're going to move on to the last paper. I'd like to welcome Dr. Satish Nadig. Uh, He just joined us here at Northwestern in the fall. He's the Chief of Transplant Surgery and Director of the Comprehensive Transplant Center. And so happens his paper um, with his group from his last position at um, Medical University of South Carolina is highlighted in the February edition of AJT. Again, it's modulating donor mitochondrial fusion. Fission delivers immunoprotective effects in cardiac transplantation. So, Satish, uh, I'd like to welcome you here, and, and thank you for um, doing this and giving us an overview of your paper. Well, thanks, Josh. Thanks for having me and uh, highlighting the paper. Um, it's a really exciting work. I look forward to talking about it. Great. All right. Well, um, I think just give us an overview of, of the work and you know, how you did it and, and what it may mean to transplantation. Yeah. So, you know, it's really interesting from a 30,000 foot view, we were looking at this whole concept of the journey of transplant for an organ. And when an organ comes out of a warm body, goes into a cold solution and goes back into a warm body and it's subjected to ischemia reperfusion. And there's very few groups out there that are really looking at um, the effects of the immunometabolism on the organ and the antigen presentation capacity and immunogenicity of specific cell types within the organ during the preservation phase. So we got kind of interested in this, you know, we thought, okay, well, if we can really drill down deep and look at antigen presenting cells, uh, specifically endothelial cells in the organ and see what their immunogenicity is um, in various immunometabolic states, could that be a druggable or therapeutic target? So um, as goes hand in hand with immunometabolism and mitochondria and We knew that several studies were pretty well established that there's a link between mitochondrial dysregulation 
and allograft rejection. And in the cancer world, it's pretty well known that uh, that mitochondrial fusion and fission alters the uh, dynamics of uh, cellular, not only proliferation, but cellular immunogenicity. So we looked at this at the level of endothelial cells. Specifically, what happens when you alter the morphology of a mitochondria in endothelial cells, specifically during that preservation phase? And we knew that preservation can alter the barrier integrity and can alter the, the antigen presentation capacity of these endothelial cells. But can we quiesce those endothelial cells from an immune perspective by altering their metabolic dynamics at the, at the mitochondria? So that was kind of the start of how we uh, got going with this, this work. And um, it took us down a really interesting pathway. Yeah, if you could um, uh, just describe this study. Yeah. Yeah. So, so basically what we wanted to do is force fuse mitochondria in the endothelial cell. So initially what we did was we took genetically knocked down mitochondria or endothelial cells for a specific protein called DRP1, which basically acts as a belt for mitochondria to cause it to break apart or uh, undergo fission. When you have a knockdown endothelial cell uh, for DRP, you force fuse those mitochondria. So we confirmed that we could force fuse these mitochondria and they go from rounded to a tubular shape. And we also confirmed that that does not affect their functional status. When we did seahorse on these endothelial cells that had knocked down DRP, we found that they had uh, significantly more oxygen consumption rate or mitochondrial spare capacity compared to their wild-type counterparts in the mouse cardiac endothelial cells. Um, so once we knew that we could get functional endothelial cells with a fused, force-fused mitochondria, we uh, we then put them in a co-culture uh, co-culture. Uh, sort, of, uh, sort of experiment where we took CD8 positive T cells that are allogeneic and found that uh, those CD8 positive T cells had much less granzyme and interferon production in the presence of those endothelial cells that had force-fused mitochondria. In fact, you had less ZCAM production uh, or expression, less ICAM production, um, and you had an increase in PDL1. What we did was, you know, obviously we're all not walking around with not genetically knocked down DRP. So we wanted to get closer to the bedside. So what we did was actually took a pharmacotherapeutic called M1MDV1, a fusion promoter and fission inhibitor, and subjected these endothelial cells to the to this pharmacotherapeutic and confirmed that in cold storage, we could force fuse or tubularize these mitochondria. When we did that, we recapitulated our results with the genetically knocked down cells. We uh, decreased the amount of VCAM, decreased the amount of ICAM, um, and increased the PDL1. In fact, we, uh, when we co-cultured them with, uh, with T cells, these T cells actually had less of a memory phenotype, both central and effector memory phenotype. Um, not only produce less interferon, less granzyme, but we were excited because, you know, obviously we all know that memory T cell, memory T cells are a barrier to uh, transplant and spared in induction immunosuppression. And this expression of PDL1, uh, when we blocked PDL1, we reversed all of those therapeutic effects. So it seemed to be PDL1 dependent. Well, we had to get closer yet to the bedside. So we, um, put all of those in vitro findings into an in vivo model. Uh, we have a, a novel model of mouse brain death in, in the lab. So we induced brain death, introduced uh, uh, this pharmacotherapeutic into the mouse, 
and found that these uh, this uh, mitochondrial tubularization stayed at the level of the endothelial cells in the microvasculature and did not penetrate to the cardiomyocytes. And we took the, the hearts out uh, after we transplanted them for 24 hours um, once the donors were treated with um, M1, MDV1, or this fusion promoter, and found that we decreased uh, the injury uh, in the hearts. Um, but more importantly, we could significantly prolong allograft survival. We compared that against, you know, one of the biggest things for the reviewers um, when we were going through the paper, which was um, very appropriate, was, is this really just an antioxidant effect? So we put that against N-acetylcysteine, which behaved really just like control brain-death mice. Uh, but when you pre-treated these brain-death, brain-dead donors with M1, MDV1 and transplanted those hearts into a heterotopic model, uh, we were able to significantly prolonged cardiac allograft survival in this in vivo model, recapitulating our in vitro results. It really an interesting insight into a potential therapeutic target in the preservation phase where these endothelial cells are isolated prior to implantation. What I will say is that it didn't prolong allograft survival long term. And so does it give us a potential window for subtherapeutic immunosuppression or a way that we can tolerize these uh, these organs in the um, short period after ischemia reperfusion. Yeah, it's really cool. I mean, uh, just again, going along the lines of, um, you know, we, whenever, whenever I think of donor manipulation, I sort of think of ischemia reperfusion injury protection, but this is really protecting against an alloimmune response. And uh, I was curious I had a few questions, if you don't mind. I mean, it's, it's really course, fascinating yeah. work. Endothelial cells obviously are a major, you know, and especially in cardiac transplant um, antigen-presenting cell. But I was sort of thinking um, there are other organs, you know, there's obviously multiple other antigen-presenting cells in the graft. Is there an ability to do this to other, you know, dendritic cells or, you know, monocyte macrophage, things that are in the um, antigen-presenting cells? Uh, within that are not endothelial cells is there do you think that yeah. needs to be done or important yeah i think it's very important and in fact when we looked at our cold storage models of endothelial cells you know we needed to have a benchmark of what these uh, endothelial cells or how these endothelial cells are behaving in cold storage and uh, we looked at them on seahorse on the seahorse technology um to see what their OCAR and ECAR were, and so their mitochondrial spare respiratory capacity oxygen consumption rates. And when they were cold stored, they acted like immunogenic dendritic cells. Mm. And so that was what gave us a clue that, uh, you know, we could potentially extrapolate this to other types of antigen, those, uh, you know, professional antigen presenting cells more in an in vivo model. So because this is an uh, ex vivo model, we wanted to initially target the endothelial cells, uh, but we want to make sure that even though they're semi-professional antigen-presenting cells, they're behaving like professional antigen-presenting cells, partly because we know that inhibiting mitochondrial fission and promoting mitochondrial fusion actually affects endothelial barrier integrity as well. And we knew that endothelial cells were the first line of defense on uh, upon implantation for uh, these circulating spared memory T cells. So those were there were various reasons we chose endothelial cells, and we have a unique opportunity in transplant because these endothelial cells are uh, isolated from the body for a period of time. Uh, but but to your question, of course, you know I think it's really important that in in upon implantation, being able to 
potentially target maybe specifically or having some precision medicine ways to target professional antigen presenting cells um, uh, at the level of the mitochondria is going to be important for their ability to present to antigen as well. Great. And then I guess um, sort of lastly, just what's next? Um, you know, you have a, a good model here. Do you think it's ready for prime time to move into human transplantation or, or what intervening studies would need to be done to kind of get us there? Because it seems like it has a lot of promise. Yeah, so various studies of a myocardial infarction and mostly in mouse models, when uh, investigators inhibited mitochondrial fission, that was able to stabilize the micro, the cardiac microvasculature. Um, but interestingly, it was also able to maintain an intact endothelial cell barrier. What we have found is that um, you lose uh, that that barrier integrity with um, gap junction and cell to cell communication and preservation phases. So I think. Is it ready for prime time? Not quite yet, because I think there's other ways that we can actually optimize its use and its its ability to work by maintaining an endothelial cell barrier, which is something we're working on right now, by targeting the mitochondria, uh, but also seeing what the long-lasting effects are of mitochondrial tubular tubularization, so taking out some time point analyses. Generally speaking, I think that this idea of pretreatment strategies is potentially very close to being ready to, for prime time, um, just in, in various ways. So uh, maybe delivering immuno, uh, immunosuppressants ex vivo, um, and we've been working on that as well. So my vision is that at, at one point in the future, there's going to be a host of an organ ICUs as well, where you're doing organ rehabilitation or organ prehabilitation, if you will, uh, prior to implantation with various methods Specifically, you know, with our with the advent of machine perfusion and liver transplantation, but also the you know heavy use of machine perfusion and kidney transplantation, the advent and and uh, progress and normothermic perfusion. A lot of these um, these pretreatment strategies are going to be really ripe for prime time in the in 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 these um, normothermic and machine perfusion arenas. Uh, so I think mitochondria immunometabolism methodologies of therapeutics um, still has some work to do for us to to dissect any off-target effects and precision um, analytics within the cells themselves and the various cell subtypes. But I, th I think that the uh, concepts can be ready uh, fairly soon. It's a very translatable technology, especially given the fact that we are using, um, we're using these therapeutics ex vivo the other piece I'll say to that is we already have built-in abilities to do preclinical trials using discarded human organs, and we can do a lot of these things on pumps and discarded human kidneys, uh, human livers, et cetera, um, and those are some of the things that we're running in our lab as well. Wonderful. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of the, some of the earlier studies of defatting the liver, um, you know, using uh, discarded, you know, organs to, to, you know, test these modalities before actually doing it. In a in a patient, is yeah, absolutely really exciting. And, yeah, and you know these early injuries, we know by works of Jordan Pober, et cetera. You know, um, we we know that these early injuries set these organs up for late graft failure. And so I think it's it's terribly important for us to be able to affect these cell types early, prior to implantation before that ischemia reperfusion hit. And, you know, by the way, that's when we're starting immunosuppression. So I think we're already behind the eight ball a little bit. All right, Satish, thank you so much. Uh, obviously, you've got a lot of work ahead of you, devil in the details, but um, really exciting. And 
for everybody, I'd like to just um, close this February AJT highlights and look forward to um, the next one in March. The opinions of the hosts of the show do not necessarily reflect those of the American Journal of Transplantation. For AJT highlights, you can find us online at amjtransplant.com. That's amjtransplant.com. And follow us on Facebook and Twitter.